Hello, everybody, and welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast, episode number 197. Today's big Bible question, are dragons and sea monsters in the Bible? So hello, friends. Welcome to another amazing episode of the Bible Mystery Podcast. Today's Bible mystery is all about dragons and sea monsters, behemoths and leviathans. Oh, actually, wait, my bad. I think I time-traveled a little bit to one year ago because that is when the first version of this podcast that you're currently listening to launched, and in its first iteration, this was known as the Bible Mystery Podcast, and it was endorsed by none other than Sherlock Holmes and Alfred Hitchcock themselves. Okay, all right, maybe not. But the other part is, the Bible Mystery Podcast was indeed born in July of 2019, lasted several months, morphed into the Bible Questions Podcast, which ultimately in January 2020 became the Bible Reading Podcast, and it's been blazing or stumbling or shambling forward since then. Some of you have been here through all three of those versions, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate you. Today's Bible readings include Joshua 16 and 17, Psalms 148, Jeremiah 8, and Matthew 22. And as I do every week on this Lord's Day, I want to invite you at 11 a.m. Pacific to join us on a Facebook page, VBC Salinas, that's Victor Bravo Charlie Salinas, VBC, where we are going to be talking about spiritual warfare in the midst of the pandemic. Hope you can make it there for our live stream. Now, I love a good mystery, especially love a good Bible mystery. Of the, I think, eight books I've written, two are on Bible mysteries and one is on Sherlock Holmes and faith. That's why today's topic really appeals to me. The Bible's full of mysteries, and I want to attempt to solve, or, you know, at least try to understand them as often as possible. The last few weeks, we've been reading about the Anakim and Rephaim in Deuteronomy and Joshua again and again, and I'm actually chomping at the bit to do an episode on those mysterious people. So hopefully that will be coming soon, possibly even tomorrow, Lord willing, we'll see since that will be the last mention of the Raphaim in our readings for some time. Today, however, our focus is on more aquatic creatures. Or are they desert creatures? Well, maybe we'll find out. Sea monsters and dragons. Surely such creatures are not in the Bible, are they? And the startling answer is, yes, they are. Well, sort of. Consider this morsel from today's focus chapter, Psalm 148, verse 7. Praise the Lord from the earth, all sea monsters and ocean depths. Sea monsters, hmm. Or how about in the King James Version? Praise the Lord from the earth, ye dragons and all deeps. Or how about the 1599 Geneva Bible? Praise ye the Lord from the earth, ye dragons and all depths. Or the more modern, the voice translation. Everything on earth, join in and praise the eternal. Sea monsters and creatures of the deep. Or how about Young's literal version? Praise ye Jehovah from the earth, dragons and all deeps. Or we can go all the way back to 1382 and look at Wycliffe's translation, which is in the Middle English. Ye of earth, hear ye the Lord. Dragoons and all depths of waters. Well, I did the best I could with that. Finally, I went on a very long rabbit trail to find a scanned copy of the oldest English language version of the Psalms that is still extant, which is the Vespasian Psalter, which is like over 500 years older than the Wycliffe translation. And it's in the old, old English, and I have no idea how to pronounce it, but it says, Hergath Drayton of Irthen Draken, 
Ale Neonisi. So that is uh, basically praise Lord of the Earth, dragons, and all from the abyss. Um, that is the that is again the old English from the 800s. So what's up with all of that? Dragons, sea monsters, sea creatures, the abyss. Well, let's go actually read the whole chunk of Psalm 148 and see if that illuminates our mystery a little bit. Psalm 148, verse one in the Christian Standard Bible. Hallelujah! Praise the Lord from the heavens, praise him in the heights, praise him all his angels, praise him all his heavenly armies, praise him sun and moon, praise him all you shining stars, praise him highest heavens and you waters above the heavens, let them praise the name of the Lord for he commanded and they were created, he set them in position forever and ever. He gave an order that will never pass away. Praise the Lord from the earth, all sea monsters and ocean depths. Lightnings and hail, snow and clouds, stormy wind that executes his command, mountains and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, creatures that crawl and flying birds, kings of the earth and all peoples, princes and all judges of the earth, young men as well as young women, old and young together, let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty covers heaven and earth. He has raised up a horn for his people, resulting in praise to all his faithful ones, to the Israelites, the people close to him. Hallelujah. Well, that's a great psalm, a wonderful psalm of praise, but I'm not sure if we've actually figured out yet if dragons and sea monsters, as we think of them, are in the Bible. Now, for that, we have to go a long, long way back etymologically, further back than the Wycliffe Bible further back than the Vespasian Psalter, and even further back than the Greek New Testament. We gotta go all the way back to the Hebrew of these Psalms. So let's crank up our time machine and head out. What word does the psalmist use here that has perplexed translators for hundreds of years? Well, the Hebrew word in question is tanin. Fascinating word. It's used many times in the Hebrew Old Testament. But what does it mean? Well, to figure that out, we have to go back, back, back even further in our time machine. And honestly, I hope our time machine has enough dilithium crystals to keep going. And yes, of course, I know I'm mixing my science fiction metaphors there. Your time machine may use chronon transduction, but mine uses dilithium because I'm not an official Gallifreyan. Anyway, we have to travel back to the beginning of the beginning, all the way back to Genesis 1, to begin to get an idea of what tanin might mean. So let's go. And here we are at Genesis 1.21, which is the first use of our lovely Hebrew word in the Bible. And it says, So God created the large sea creatures, and there's the word, and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Now, that's Genesis 1.21 in the CSB, and I love the CSB. It's a great translation for accuracy and readability. I use it often, but you know what? That's kind of a boring translation of Genesis 1.21 compared to some of the others. Like, for instance, the King James Version says, God created great whales and every living thing that moveth. And the Young's literal translation is even more stimulating. It says, God prepareth the great monsters and every living creature that is creeping. So that's better. We're back to monsters, but, you know, we honestly haven't solved our mystery yet, have we? Let's see if a few more verses in the Bible can help us solve the mystery. Here are six more passages in which the Hebrew word 
Tanin, it figures prominently. Perhaps from this context, we can get a little bit closer to a conclusion. Exodus 7, verse 10. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and did just as the Lord had commanded. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a tanin, or a serpent. Well, that's interesting. Isaiah 27, 1. On that day, the Lord with his relentless large strong sword will bring judgment on Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent. He will slay the tanin, or monster, that is in the sea. That's Isaiah 27.1. How about Isaiah 43.20? Wild animals, jackals, and ostriches will honor me because I provide water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people. Well, what word is tanning there? Guess what? It's jackals. That's interesting. Jeremiah 14.6 also uses jackals, and it says, Wild donkeys stand on the barren heights panting for air like jackals, or tanning. Their eyes fail because there are no green plants. Or how about Lamentations 4.3? In the Young Living Translation, it says, Even dragons have drawn out the breast. They have suckled their young ones. The daughter of my people has become cruel, like the ostriches in a wilderness. Now, I'm not sure what Jeremiah had against ostriches, but the CSB there doesn't say dragons for tenning. It says jackals. And it ta- it's talking about jackals or dragons or tanin nursing their young. Hmm, okay, one more. Micah 1 verse 8, which says, Because of this, I will lament and wail. I will walk barefoot and naked. I will howl like the jackals or tanin and mourn like ostriches. Okay, so what have we learned here? Well, a lot, actually. But before we process it, I should note that the Bible was not written to be a modern biological textbook, nor an astronomical text or whatever. We need to remember that most of the passages I just read were written somewhere between 2,500 and 3,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. People thought quite differently then. So when scripture uses a word like star, or the Hebrew word, or the Greek word for star, it doesn't necessarily mean exactly what we think of when we hear the word star, like a giant gas ball. The Bible does not draw a distinction between heavenly bodies like planets and stars, and how would, why would it? Uh, it would be pointless. It would be incredibly difficult for the readers of the Bible to understand if it did. It simply calls each one a star, or the Hebrew-Greek equivalent of that word, and it doesn't mean star, it really means bright, shiny thing in the sky, or heavenly body, just like every other language group would have done 2,500 to 3,000 years ago. Now, I think we have a similar situation here with our examination of sea monsters or dragons in the Bible. Looking at our above description, no one single creature on earth is described by all of the traits listed in those passages, and there's actually a couple dozen more. Moses and Aaron tossed down their staffs, and they became tanin. Tanin were created by God in the depths of the water, living in the sea. Tanin also apparently live in the desert. They nurse their young, which reptiles don't do, and they howl, which, you know, I don't think reptiles do that either. There's honestly no single creature that does all that in the history of the earth. So, does that mean we've discovered an error in the Bible? Well, of course not. Our Hebrew word, tanin, is apparently a generic sort of word, a general sort of word, like our word, beast, or creature, or monster. Okay, quiz here. 
If I say the word monster, quick, what are you thinking of? Some of you probably are thinking of a Frankenstein-like monster. Others a Wolfman-like monster. Others still like an animal-like monster or like a Godzilla kind of monster or even as some sort of a sea monster. And some of you are probably even thinking of an evil human as a monster. Our modern word monster can accurately mean all of those things and more, as can our words creature, thing, brute, beast, freak, etc. I believe that's what's going on here. We don't. We can't know the exact creature that is identified by the word tannin any more than a modern reader would know what exact creature is meant by the words thing, horror, monster, etc. without a lot of context given by the author. Now, I can certainly see how some ancient Hebrews would have viewed whales as big as they are or sharks, or crocodiles, or jackals, or cobras, or any other scary creatures as beasts, or monsters, or tenine. That said, I actually, that makes me think that the word monster, or sea monster, or beast, or creature is a fine translation, maybe the best translation, just because it's the most generic and the safest, I realize it's kind of boring, but maybe the best translation is creature. Uh, I, because it accurately captures, I think, the original meaning of the Hebrew word. So, are there monsters in the Bible? Are there dragons in the Bible? Well, I'm comfortable saying there sort of are monsters in the Bible, just like there sort of are monsters in the world right now. A 100-foot-long blue thing that's bigger than most boats, a blue whale, that's kind of monstrous. I know blue whales don't eat people, but if I see one swimming around in the water, I'm not going to jump in and test that theory with that thing. I'm going to say that's a monstrous looking creature. And there are others, lions, tigers, hyenas, jackals, whatever. A lot of monstrousy looking things out there. So I'm very comfortable with saying there are monsters in the wild of the world right now. There are monsters in the depths of the sea. We might have scientific names for them, but you know what? They're monsters anyway. And there are monsters in the Bible. If you disagree with that, no problem. It's not a big deal. Nothing we want to draw lines over. But we do want to continue reading the scripture. So let's go to Joshua chapter 16, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. And there's going to be a lot of names here. Wish me luck. The allotment for the descendant of Joseph went from the Jordan at Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east, through the wilderness ascending from Jericho into the hill country of Bethel. From Bethel it went to Luz and proceeded to the border of the Archites by Ataroth. It then descended westward to the border of the Japhlites as far as the border of lower Beth Haran then to Gezer, and ended at, the, ended at the Mediterranean Sea. So Ephraim and Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, received their inheritance. This was the territory of the descendants of Ephraim by their clans. The border of their inheritance went from Adaroth Adar on the east to upper Beth Haran. In the north, the border went westward from Michmethoth. It turned eastward from Tanath Shiloh and passed it east of Genoa. From Genoa, it descended to Adaroth and Nara and then reached Jericho and went to the Jordan. From Tapua, the border went westward along the brook of Cana and ended at the Mediterranean Sea. This was the inheritance of the tribe of the descendants of Ephraim by their clans, together with the city set apart for the descendants of Ephraim within the inheritance of the descendants of Manasseh, all these cities with their settlements. However, they did not drive out the Canaanites who lived in Gezer. 
So the Canaanites still live in Ephraim today, but they are forced laborers. Chapter 17, verse 1. This was the allotment for the tribe of Manasseh as Joseph's firstborn. Gilead and Bashan were given to Machir, the firstborn of Manasseh and the father of Gilead, because he was a man of war. So the allotment was for the rest of Manasseh's descendants by their clans, for the sons of Abiezar, Helek, Azrael, Shechem, Hefer and Shemida. These are the male descendants of Manasseh, son of Joseph, by their clans. Now Zelophehad, son of Hefer, son of Gilead, son of Machir, son of Manasseh, had no sons, only daughters. These are the names of his daughters, Malah, Noah, Hagla, Milcah, and Tertzah. They came before the priest Eleazar, Joshua, son of Nun, and the leaders, saying, The Lord commanded Moses to give us an inheritance among our male relatives. So they gave him an inheritance among their father's brothers in keeping with the Lord's instruction. As a result, ten tracts fell to Manasseh beside the land of Gilead and Bashan, which are beyond the Jordan, because Manasseh's daughters received an inheritance among his sons. The land of Gilead belonged to the rest of Manasseh's sons. The border of Manasseh went from Asher to Michmethath near Shechem. It then went north-southward to the inhabitants of Entapua. The region of Tapua belonged to Manasseh, but Tapua itself on Manasseh's border belonged to the descendants of Ephraim. From there, the border descended to the brook of Canaan. South of the brook, cities belonged to Ephraim along among Manasseh's cities. Manasseh's border was on the north side of the brook and ended at the Mediterranean Sea. Ephraim's territory was to the south and Manasseh's to the north with the sea as its border. They reached Asher on the north and Issachar on the east. Within Asakar and Asher, Manasseh and Beth Sheen, Ibliam and the inhabitants of, Dor, inhabitants of Dor with their surrounding villages, the inhabitants of Endor, Tanakh and Megiddo, the three cities of Nephath with their surrounding villages. The descendants of Manasseh could not possess these cities because the Canaanites were determined to stay in this land. However, when the Israelites grew stronger, they imposed forced labor on the Canaanites, but they did not drive them out completely. Joseph's descendants said to Joshua, Why did you give us only one tribal allotment as an inheritance? We have many people because the Lord has been blessing us greatly. If you have so many people, Joshua replied to them, Go to the forest and clear an area for yourselves. They are in the land of the Perizzites and the Rephaim because Ephraim's hill country is too small for you. But the descendants of Joseph said, The hill country is not enough for us, and all the Canaanites who inhabit the valley area have iron chariots, both at Beth Shean with its surrounding villages and in the Jezreel Valley. So Joshua replied to Joseph's family, that is Ephraim and Manasseh, You have many people in great strength. You will not have just one allotment, because the hill country will be yours also. It is a forest. Clear it, and its outlying areas will be yours. You can also drive out the Canaanites, even though they have iron chariots and are strong. Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 1. At that time, this is the Lord's declaration, the bones of the kings of Judah, the bones of her officials, the bones of the priests, the bones of the prophets, and the bones of the residents of Jerusalem will be brought out of their graves. They will be exposed to the sun, the moon, and all the stars in the sky, which they have loved, served, followed, consulted, and worshipped. Their bones will not be collected and buried, but will become like manure on the soil's surface. Death will be chosen over life by all the survivors of this evil family, those who remain wherever I have banished them. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. You are to say to them, this is what the Lord says. Do people fall and not get up again? If they turn away, do they not return? Why have these people turned away? Why is Jerusalem always turning away? They take hold of deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid careful attention. They do not speak what is right. 
No one regrets his evil, asking, What have I done? Everyone has stayed his course like a horse rushing into battle. Even storks in the sky know their seasons. Turtle doves, swallows, and cranes are aware of their migration. But my people do not know the requirements of the Lord. How can you claim we are wise? The law of the Lord is with us. In fact, the lying pen of scribes has produced falsehood. The wise will be put to shame. They will be dismayed and snared. They have rejected the word of the Lord. So what wisdom do they really have? Therefore, I will give their wives to other men their fields to new occupants, for from the least to the greatest everyone is making profit dishonestly. From prophet to priest everyone deals falsely. They have treated the brokenness of my dear people superficially, claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they acted so detestably? They weren't at all ashamed. They can no longer feel humiliation. Therefore they will fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they will collapse, says the Lord. I will gather them and bring them to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. There will be no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree, and even the leaf will wither. Whatever I have given them will be lost to them. Why are we just sitting here? Gather together. Let's enter the fortified cities and perish there. For the Lord our God has destroyed us. He's given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against the Lord. We hoped for peace, but there was nothing good. For a time of healing, but there was only terror. From Dan, the snorting of horses is heard. At the sound of the neighing of mighty steeds, the whole land quakes. They come to devour the land and everything in it, the city and all its residents. Indeed, I am about to send snakes among you, poisonous vipers that cannot be charmed. They will bite you. This is the Lord's declaration. My joy has flown away. Grief has settled on me. My heart is sick. Listen, the cry of my dear people from a faraway land. Is the Lord no longer in Zion, her king not within her? Why have they angered me with their carved images, with their worthless foreign idols? Harvest is past, summer has ended, but we have not been saved. I am broken by the brokenness of my dear people. I mourn. Horror has taken hold of me. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? So why is the healing of my dear people not come about? Matthew chapter 22 verse 1. Once more Jesus spoke to them in parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who gave a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to summon those invited to the banquet, but they didn't want to come. Again, he sent out other servants and said, Tell those who were invited, See, I've prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf had been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went away, one to his own farm, another to his business, while the rest seized his servants mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged, and he sent out all his troops, killed those murderers, and burned down their city. Then he told his servants, The banquet is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go then to where the roads exit the city and invite everyone you find to the banquet. So these servants went out on the roads and gathered everyone they found, both evil and good. The wedding banquet was filled with guests. When the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed for a wedding, so he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without wedding clothes? The man was speechless. Then the king told his attendants, Tie him up hand and foot and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to trap him by what he said. So they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, We know that you are truthful and teach truthfully the way of God. We don't care what anyone thinks nor... Do you, you don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Perceiving their malicious intent, Jesus said, 
Why are you testing me, hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the tax. They brought him a denarius. Whose image and inscription is this? He asked them. Uh, Caesar's, they said to him. Then he said to them, Give then to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. That same day, some Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came up to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother is to marry his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first got married and died having no offspring. He left his wife to his brother. The same thing happened to the second also and the third and so also to all seven. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection then, whose wife will she be of the seven? For they had all married her. Jesus answered them, You are mistaken, because you don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now concerning the resurrection of the dead, haven't you read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they came together, and one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? And he said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. While the Pharisees were together, Jesus questioned them. What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? They replied, David's. And he asked them, How is it then that David, inspired by the Spirit, calls him Lord? The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how then can he be his son? No one was able to answer him at all. And from that day on, no one dared to question him anymore. Well, blessed be the name of the Lord. Thank you, God, for the teachings of Jesus and all that we've read today. Turn our hearts to you. Bless this as a good Sabbath day, a good Lord's day of celebration and worship and rejoicing in the resurrection of our King. Lord, carry us through these dark and difficult hours with our eyes on you. Amen. Good day, friends, and Godspeed.